Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Triul, your host, and today I will talk to Professor Nancy Chodorow about her most recent book titled The Psychoanalytic Ear and the Sociological Eye, Toward an American Independent Tradition, and this is Rutledge 2020. Professor Chodorow is a training and supervising analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society, and Institute and Faculty at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. She's author of numerous articles and books, including her groundbreaking and extremely generative publication, The Reproduction of Mothering. Today, she's in private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to the program, Nancy. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And um, could we just start the interview by uh, looking at the title a bit closer, The Psychoanalytic Ear and the Sociological Eye, and especially the subtitle, Toward an American Independent Tradition. What is the American Independent Tradition? Uh, Well, the American Independent Tradition is a tradition that I think I, well, I recognized and named. Um, I had, uh, in my first introduction to psychoanalysis, um, after reading Freud, a little bit of Freud, when I was still in a sociologist and former anthropologist that read some of Freud, um, I learned a lot about the British middle group or the British independent tradition uh, and the writers of that group, um, Ballant, Fairbairn, Guntrip, Winnicott, in some ways formed the basis of the theory that went into my first book, my dissertation book, The Reproduction of Mothering. And at the time it was the middle group, but soon after I knew it as the British independent group. And then as I was trying to think about what was really a passion for Lowald and um, a deep commitment to this sort of Ericksonian melding of interest in society in the psyche uh, and interest in the psyche and society, um, I came to think of Lowald and Erickson is serving a certain kind of um, role that was very similar to what came to be named as the British independent tradition. That is that they were both themselves originally ego-psychologists, which is, of course, the one of the primary contributions and was for a long time the orthodoxy of American psychoanalysis. And uh, at the same time, they both, in different ways, um, 
brought very different perspectives. Erickson, who's not much known now, was probably one of the most famous psychoanalysts of the 20th century, and he was a, a giant public intellectual in this country, um, brought his child training with Anna Freud and his clinical ear to huge range of sort of psychosocial issues. Um, he was very close to some anthropologists. He wrote Childhood and Society. Um, he was quite criticized for moving out of the ego-psychological fold by the uh, ego-psychologists. And um, he was a crossover. He taught in the university. He was a public intellectual. Um, but he had these very fine-tuned um, analyses, accounts, even before the psychobiographies of what it feels like to be a Native American or to be a, a black person, what, what stigma feels like in the individual psyche. Um, and so this was one person whom I saw originally as, you could say, middle group, because he's both a psychoanalyst, student of Anna Freud, trained in Vienna, and very involved in culture and personality anthropology in the university and the social sciences. Uh, and I bring him up first because he's the first analyst I ever read, I think even before Freud. And then um, Lowald, I came to try to, I just first completely fell in love with when I read him, the first article I ever read. And then... Which you read in, in training, I right? Read in, no, I read actually my, my current institute had a course for graduate students in the social sciences and the humanities who mm -hmm. could go and study. They had a, a seminar where you could go and take a class with some senior analysts, just a free seminar that they offered to the academic community. And in that seminar, the first year, we read Lowald's Internalization, Separation, Mourning, and the Superego, which I have a whole chapter on in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I kind of fell in love with Lowald. And then I read, of course, more and more and more, and I read the entire, you know, collected works, and I um, wrote articles about him. And again, he was like Erickson, very much and very centrally ego-psychologically trained. But mm -hmm. at the same time, he brought something quite different. He was not a Hartmanian, although he talks a lot about differentiation and um, he uses those terms, but he brought a unique way of thinking um, about how the mind develops and what the relationship is between the analyst and the patient and the mother and the child uh, that I felt called upon to try and make something of. So I think that um, trying to understand something about Lowell and Erickson and then being asked to write on American psychoanalysis, and I felt writing is a luxury. You write about what you want to write about. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to write about 
Erickson and Lowell and what made them so special and what made them so amazing. And particularly, I guess, what was it about Lowell that was so extraordinary? And it was this capacity that he had to really keep in mind the analytic relationship without ever fusing the two and always really seeing how the analyst was focused on the patient. This was not co-constructed. This was not what you could call two-person unified. It was not more than the sum of the parts. It was really this amazing capacity to conceptualize. Um, Right. And this, let let me just, let me just um, jump in here real quick because um, the two persons separate that you ascribe to the American independent tradition, right? Um, do, Do you think that's, that's actually like, um, the ego psychological heritage that is in there. Def, it's definitely the ego psychological heritage. Um, that I should, I'd like to, you know, give the quirk citation since there's also a chapter about him. Two person separate was a formulation of Warren Poland's, um, who in his, um, plenary address called witnessing to the American psychoanalytic distinguished between one person psychoanalysis, two-person unified, and two-person separate. He was trying to distinguish sort of classical ego psychology or classical, well, ego psychology in particular, but any of the one-person Freudian theories and the more relational co-constructionist two-person unified, and that he wanted to have a place where it was definitely two people, but the patient is separate and an individual Mm -hmm. in his or her own right. Um, so I, I think that, so, yeah. And I was but always the, the thing, to, what, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really in, in, in terms of my own history, and then I'll try and listen to you a little bit more. Um, it, it's, it's, I come from social science, so it's been very, very important for me to, as a psychoanalyst really um, emphasize individuality, that there's a person who is a separate individual, however much they engage in relationships, however much they are of a particular gender or race or class or ethnicity, that that part of my passion for two-person separate or for the one person part about psychoanalysis is because I feel that psychoanalysis is the only field that really emphasizes the uniqueness of and complexity of individuality. Yeah, it's really interesting that, like, as you were saying before, right, in your first book, The Reproduction of Mothering, you really made use of, I guess, theoreticians within psychoanalysis who were not really part of the canon in in the U.S. at that time, right? Like, I mean, the British middle group, um, you were quite the contrarian. Yes, I, yes, that's true. I, they, was definitely, they were definitely not 
they were certainly nowhere in American psychoanalysis at that point. Um, at all. So, but but what 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 was it then that made you return to these people that are, per self definition, ego psychologists? Like, what what did you find there that you could not find anywhere else? What is what? Because see, I'm wondering about this because ego psychology is something that in 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 this uh, in in these days is sometimes like. You know, not even thought about anymore. Not even like up to the point where it's actually ridiculed. Like not just not just in the public, but even like in psychoanalytic circles. So, but what what is it that you found worth salvaging from from ego psychology? Well, I think you could say several things. One is that it more than any other theory focuses on the patient, on the person, mm -hmm. and. Um, I've been through lots of different theories and lots of different, you know, both clinically as in my training and afterwards and also in my writing. Um, and um, it seems to me that there was a very, that I've been, <laughs> that there, it's the theory that really looks at one person and that, mm -hmm. Um, I spent many years in a Klein study group in San Francisco, you know, with the Betty Joseph would come and visit with us twice a year and we'd present to her and have, you know, two day workshops and Elizabeth Stilius came and I presented to her and all of, I, I, I don't know. I think it's probably my personality partly. I, I, and it's partly how I became an analyst that it seems to me that, that there's been a real draw from the beginning, to focus as much, if not more, on the subjectivity of the analyst as of the patient. I mean, even mm -hmm. now we have what I call in our writing, I name it sort of tongue-in-cheek Freud, tongue-in-cheek Freud Ipse, Freud mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. And it was a great advance to focus on the, the I and to have the person write in the first person. But I think that... Um, I came back to ego psychology. As I said, I started out in the British middle yeah. groupy identity because I loved the sort of the way in which object relations theory melded something about the psyche and the social and the intersubjective. And then I moved into a more Kleinian kind of period. And then I sort of felt like it was all about the analyst, all about subjective identification, all about the analyst's consciousness. And um, mm -hmm. where was this one field that recognizes the importance of the other, of the individual as a person, as a psyche, as a subject? Uh, and so I think that's what brought me back, but also my just loving Erickson and Lowald. I mean, you know, it didn't have to be ego-psychology, yeah. but they were ego-psychologists. But I, I think I'm often somebody who doesn't like it when when fads take over and people are dismissed or ways of thinking are dismissed you know yeah uh, I, yeah i want to have my own mind and i guess that's mm -hmm. quite, that's quite ego psychological mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think the other thing to say about i've written about this that i think lowald especially um sort of 
comes from the same intellectual uh, soil as the people who are the same intellectual location as the people who trained me as a social scientist. First, right. first training was as an anthropologist, a psychological anthropologist. And of course, Erickson is very compatible with psychological anthropology, psychoanalytic anthropology. I did field work as an undergraduate. But in graduate school, when I chose to become a sociologist, I also chose to go to a unique kind of non, not sort of the, a university that had particular characteristics and it was Brandeis. And one of its characteristics was that the senior faculty were German Jewish refugees. Right. So, um, you know, they came from the same kind of intellectual soil, the same intellectual ground that Lowell did. They were people trained not, not in psychiatry, but Lowell wasn't trained in psychiatry. He was, as he puts it, trains philosophy until the terrible betrayal of Heidegger. Yeah, um, yeah. But that sort of German phenomenological um, certain way of thinking was very close to people who were doing sociology of knowledge, sort of ethnomethodology, which is kind of phenomenological sociology. So I think that that there was that recognition in, in how Lowell thought. Yeah, and I think that is something that is something that really comes out in the book, in 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 your thinking and also in the thinking of, of Lowell and, and other people you describe. Because what I think is is the most impressive thing for me is how careful the thinking is. Like how measure how measured and how how complex ideas are presented this is not this is not a tradition of broad strokes of um of 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 blunt intervention right yes yes exactly and i think this is something that also really comes out in in your thinking about about technique because you describe a certain i wouldn't say like technique of the american independent tradition per se more like an attitude mm -hmm. yes yes well right i mean the american independent tradition like the british is meant to be open you know it it shifts mm -hmm. you're right like the do does winnicott have the same attitude as marion milner as the same attitude as christopher bolus is the same attitude as michael parsons well yes and and enid ballant well yes and no mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's right. Um, there's a um, what I call in the book curiosity. Yes, uh, a non-theory drivenness. A uh, it's independent. <laughs> um, it is. It is independent. Yes, that, that's um, what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly, and it's um, it's a focus on the patient, um, and of course, the American part, as I say, is because it the the people are sort of come from American roots. Um, 
they're not, you know, part of those labels, British independent, is because they're Britain. They're from Britain. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure I just don't know that much about, especially, you know, um, continental European analysis. I know some, but I would, it's been very dominated hegemonically by the more Latinate um, yeah. populations. You don't have a sense of Scandinavia or Germany. You have lots of analysts, but you don't have a sense of the particular contributions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's meant to do many things. I don't know if you probably have questions for me about that, but you know, it's yeah. I, w I was going to ask actually about about the Americanness mm -hmm. of the American independent tradition, because that was kind of the the birth the birthplace of of your thinking about this. Right, you were asked to present a paper about what's American about American psychoanalysis, and and um, in your contribution or in your thinking. What's American about the American independent tradition? Ah, that's a very good question. Well, one of the things I say in the cha in that chapter in the original article, tongue in cheek, is I talk about many things that are American. One of the things I say about American psychoanalysis that's American, although not psychoanalytic, is the sort of the, I I say it is like the you know the characters in a Henry James novel. They look across the ocean to get at what's the real cultural truth. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. you have the American people who, for at one point, are completely <clears throat> enamored of Klein, and then they're enamored of Winnicott, and then they're enamored of Chivatarezi and Pharaoh. You know, they always think mm -hmm. that somehow the continent will be more um, cultural. But I think what's American, um, for starters, most most basically, is that the American independent tradition draws upon the two classical American traditions. The American tradition, independent tradition, which I call intersubjective ego psychology, draws from both the interpersonal tradition, the Sullivanian tradition, if you will, the William Allenson White tradition nowadays, mm -hmm. um, the tradition that paid attention to Two person, what goes on between patient and analyst? Um, what uh, the paid attention to countertransference, Sullivan, Searles, all those the people who did that, and so it melds in the most basic sense um, interpersonal and ego psychology, interpersonal psychoanalysis and ego psychology uh -huh. in its theory uh -huh. and in its practice. Um, so. And then, you know, that's the American part of it. And then I think the reason I called it an American independent tradition was partly because I thought that in some ways I think that it, it, it does what the British independent tradition does. It's both a melding of two conflictual traditions, but also it has its own um, passionate commitment to the individual. So it, it's in, in both of those senses, it's very akin to the British independent tradition, not following it, but it was sort of, that was in my thinking that it was both the, um, the it's, it's a middle group in a sense that it takes some parts of both 
American traditions, but it's also an independent tradition. And I talk in the book, especially in the last chapter, about the fact that it seems to me that independence, and in in the chapter on from behind the couch, that independence in both Britain and the United States um, pay more attention to individuality and to yes individual uniqueness and um, individuality almost as a subjectivity. Yes. Yes. Um, so I think that that's you know. It, it's why it's more than a middle group, but it has those two things in common with, with the British. It, it's, it draws from two, two really Native American traditions, if you will, almost Native, because nothing's Native in America except for the Native Americans. Yeah. Um, and it also emphasizes individuality, and uh, which allows for something else I think I mentioned. And, I think we're thinking maybe of talking about, which is it, it, it leads to list what I call listening to, um, mm-hmm. and curiosity. Mm-hmm. In the book, you make a really interesting differentiation between theories or concepts that actually foster a technique of listening to the patient versus a technique of listening for uh, mm-hmm. a certain concept in the material of the patient. Yes. Could you talk about this a little? Sure. Well, you know, part of the, I, I have to step back, part of the, the privilege I've really had in my life is to be working in different communities and different worlds. And and to, um it's also a liability, you know, not having started at age 25 or 23 doing clinical work. And that was my main focus. And from that, I expanded outward. But um, I've, I'm often invited or have often been invited to, to try and answer big picture questions. And listening to and listening for came at a confluence of three different occasions in the early 2000s, all of which asked me in some ways to give big picture, give a big picture about psychoanalysis. Um, one of them was um, going to the, uh, being invited to the Delphi conference on psychoanalysis when the subject of the conference that year, it was, I think it was in the summer of 2000, was Know Thyself, which is the inscription above the temple of Apollo in mm-hmm. Delphi. And then um, I was also asked to be on a two-part panel with four other people. It was an all-day symposium in honor of Bob Wallerstein, uh, Robert Wallerstein, who was a very, you know, eminent, of course, mm-hmm. psychoanalyst, president mm-hmm. of the International Psychoanalytic Association and a professor of psychiatry at um, University of California at San Francisco. But it was sort of a very big... Um, two-part conference. Uh, and then I was invited to be a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute, which is an institute for advanced study at Harvard, which is an interdisciplinary mm-hmm. um, institute. And so for about a year, uh, um, my speaking and writing about psychoanalysis were all for these very kind of uh, 
um, global, in some ways, occasions. They were for psychoanalysts from all over the world in Delphi. They were for psychiatrists as well as psychoanalysts at the Bob Wallerstein San Francisco conference, UC University of California. And then they were at the Radcliffe Institute, which was people in literature and philosophers and um, political scientists and uh, artists and musicians. Uh Um, uh And so I think it was in the context of trying to give a broad picture of what is psychoanalysis and what are some of its big dilemmas. And um, what's going on with it now? And as I was thinking about what was going on with it now, I was thinking about all of the contentiousness, the the Mm -hmm. theoretical fights. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I myself had been trained in an ego-psychological institute. Before I'd even started training, I was deeply immersed in the British middle group, the British independent tradition. I then spent all this time with, you know, Betty Joseph and a Klein group. And I was at a university at the University of California where I had a couple of colleagues who really, and I agreed about Winnicott and the British independent tradition, but most people in the humanities were dyed in the wool Lacanians. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was a theorist and I came from trying to put this all together and and what it seemed to me and what it seemed to me from going to case conferences and meetings was that there was there were really the sort of on the ground ethnographers of the psyche if you will who were sort of wanting to just be open to what is the patient trying to say? What do they mean? What are they trying to communicate? And then very much on the other side, from almost day one in psychoanalysis, there were the, you know, when I was in training, you know, you can't, they have to reach the Oedipal level before you can bring them into <laughs> analysis. Right. Or um, where's the splitting? Or what? can I pay attention to the projective identification here? What's the patient uh-huh. putting into me? Um, you know, where's the where's the name of the father here? That that this person isn't uh-huh. analyzable because they haven't reached the Oedipal name of the father level. So I think that listening to it came from being asked in these very multidisciplinary, <laughs> all over the world situations to give a big picture account of psychoanalysis and and also looking kind of ethnographically at my own trajectory and thinking, well, you know, as I say in that chapter, you know, nobody thinks they're not helping their patient when they say something. Everybody's trying to help. You know, everybody, their theory must be right some of the time. They think it's useful. But really, also being so, in some ways, a little bit shocked when I first learned about how contentious theoretical um, struggle was within psychoanalysis, how how contentious the, and fighting the, the splits between Anna Freud and Melanie Klein were in England and uh-huh. between uh-huh. ego psychology and interpersonalists here were then, I remember going to a, a symposium in San Francisco between 
the Kernbergs and um, the Ornsteins mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. listening to, you know, the Kohut-Kernberg debate. And, and just so it really made me think about this theory-driven way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's how I so all of those came together and listening to and listening for, mm-hmm. um, I think. So, but then to specify, is there in your in your practice, is there a place for listening for at all? Like, do you use how or how do you use theory in the consulting room then? Ah. Well, uh, I think, I don't think, when I say listening to, um, I think, I don't say that you don't use theory. I think you don't have, you assume that people are complicated and that every theory, as I say, was developed by some analyst who in a well-meaning way wanted to help his or her patient. Therefore. Some aspect of every theory is liable to be helpful to some person some of the time. And so it seems to me that our job is to be able to hold these various theories in mind and let what the patient says or does guide us to the theory that is appropriate at that moment and it may or may not be useful to you know you don't want to tell them all this is what the theory says but but the point is not to be i mean i am if any i am a theorist (laughs) i love theory Uh i love (laughs) writing about theory i love thinking about theory but i do think that the point of it is not to be a theoretical but the point is to not think that one theory is going to work with every one of your patients all the time. And that's what I felt was going on for some time. Certainly it was going on in American ego psychology. I mean, I have my kind of, you know, whatever you want to call them, my bet noir in this book, but, you know, mm-hmm. I think, and I talk about this, I think, you know, sometime when you read Paul Gray, somebody who was pouncing on the resistance mm-hmm. or the, contemporary Kleinians pouncing on the counter-transference or on the projective identification. Right. Um, uh, the contemporary Bionians, you know, relentlessly focused on the analysts' dreaming and the analysts' associations. Um, it's the looking for confirmation of the theory rather than assuming that it you know that people probably at different times a little bit of a different interpretation or a different understanding will make a difference and i also say and i have a footnote which and i know exactly when the occasion was i went to a conference i think a relational international relational conference in um, los angeles and they had a set of theory workshops where two presenters presented for each two presenters for each theory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember who the Kleinians were, but it was very clear that one of the Kleinians was much more Kleinian than the other. One of them was really driven by looking for 
the projective identifications and the envy and the attacks on the analyst. And the other one was, it was in the back of their mind. And I also remember the two self-psychologists, in particular, my admired colleague, now colleague in my hometown now, Anna Ornstein, Uh who uh was a self-psychologist, but unlike the other self-psychologist whose name I don't remember, she wasn't looking for the mirroring transferences, the idealizing transferences. She was listening to the patient. And, you know, so the point is, of course, theory. You know, I, I write about this also, you know, mother-daughter theory. I mean, that's my other mm-hmm. field. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure, and I write about, I'm, I'm attuned to mother-daughter more than I'm sure a lot of other analysts are. Mm-hmm. But if I thought that all mothers and daughters marched off the page of the reproduction of mothering, I wouldn't be a very good analyst. You know? Right, right. Right, but I would be surprised to find a patient who wasn't in some way more or less entang- a woman entangled with her mother. Right, and some not so important, some you know. So you can't do it without the theory, but it's a question of listening for. Sometimes I get the sense that. Um you know, analysts working primarily with very disturbed or very regressed patients, psychotic patients, borderline cases, that sometimes they tend to cling more to theory in a way as to, it it seems like to me to have like, you know, a certain authority in the room, a certain kind of, yeah, certainty. Um, and and I was wondering, like, um, just turning that thought around and looking looking at the American independent tradition or uh, your your technical explications, um, how how does that work with with very disturbed patients? Like, because isn't there a danger of with just listening to the patient getting lost in the narrative? Well, um, or in the in the in the transference counter transference heat of the moment. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, this is going to sound very. Um, I, I, I'm trying to be careful here. Um, this is probably an unpopular position, but. <laughs> uh, I think you're right with very disturbed. I think that I'm not saying one thing is I'm not saying not to use theory. Yes. I'm yes, I get that. saying that individuals, maybe different theories apply and this different theories might apply to the same person at different points in an analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I myself have a question about, as they called it once upon a time, the widening scope and how very disturbed patients and how who create 
so much loss in the narrative in the analyst. Um, mm -hmm. If analysis is the right treatment for them. Right. Now, that's different from we assume that everybody has regressed moments. But I'm, you know, clearly the, the, the absolute, the narrow scope was much too narrow, but, but I have mm -hmm. much more um, respect for and concern about the kind of the psychiatric dimensions here. And um, right. whether or not, you know, that there is a sort of an omnipotence that's entered into psychoanalytic theory, practice, treatment throughout the world, which is, you know, things often go from, you know, pendulum swings um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, from thesis to antithesis. But I think at this point, the antithesis that anybody will benefit from an analysis and, and of course, that's gained currency since, at least in our country, it's so much harder to find people who want to be in analysis. Right. Um, there's so many other treatments. Um, I think that this hasn't been so great for analysis, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think that you can't just be doing analysis if you are working with a very disturbed patient who maybe needs some other kind of help. Well, I guess I guess it also depends on how you define analysis. Like, have a, have a narrow or wide scope there, right? Because I mean, you can you can practice, or you have you can have an analytic attitude in in a psychiatric setting, for example, and then that's different than having someone on the couch five times a week. And then I think it's also a question of of psychic health, right? Like, I mean, how 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 do you define someone getting better or 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 even like how, what's what's the vision of change like how how is change supposed to happen and there's a really good point i think that lowald makes about that and you write about that in the book right the the vision of of psychic health it's not it's not like um constant stability or, or a, a static, static um, sense of of health, but it's it's actually it's it's a range, and it's actually like a sense of mobility, yes, right? Yes, he says that he's very he's wonderful about that. One can't, you know, you want to just quote him word for word, but it's wonderful about. Mm -hmm. it. He says yes, yes, you wouldn't want somebody who was so stable all the time, and you want the range between transference and counter-transference and regressed oneness and differentiation and and it's the psychic range that is the the marker or the hope that you the hope that you can give to somebody mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that is actually something that struck me as as very american um because like on the one hand it's very it's very pragmatic it's a very pragmatic sense about like you know, even defining psychic health is not something that is very popular in some psychoanalytic circles. It's very pragmatic. Uh, and on the other hand, it's mobile. Like it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not something, 
you know, patient gets better, is at this stage and is, is then stable and, and healthy. It's, it's more like, um, it's fluid. It's, it's mobile. It's moving between unconscious and preconscious, between preconscious and conscious. Um, I thought that was, that was, it had a very energetic, energetic American quality to the it Roald, in, in my in, vision of yeah. Sophie Cast. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting, of course, because yes, it does have an, it, I mean, I suppose you would, yes, it is an uh, energetic American quality in a sense. Um, but of course, Lowell, like, as I say, most Americans, um, hardly began as an American. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, but there is something, yes, there's something about, and I don't know if it's American, and that's what's, of course, such an irony about my American independent tradition, you know, founded by two German-Jewish refugees or uh-huh. Austrian-Jewish uh-huh. refugees. Um, I don't know that, I think Erickson might be seen to have been more of a pragmatist, you know, in terms of his ability, uh-huh. his changing his name to suit his identity convenience. Uh-huh. Is switching uh-huh. fields, but Lowald was so theoretical and so precise in his thinking. I don't think of him as a pragmatist at all. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I think of him as, you know, I think when he's talking about these things, he's trying to give us what I call a vision. Um, Yes. He's trying to make the concepts that have been so reified by in so much psychoanalytic thinking up to the his period to give them a kind of a liveliness and to put them into the context of a, a living person with a living psyche um, mm-hmm. who will engage in this range of mobility and engage in this um attachment and separateness and will bask in being smiled upon like the mother smiles on the infant. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then when he says, you know, it's an attentive, what does he say exactly? It's an attentiveness, which is love and respect for the individual in the Mm -hmm. analyst's stance. Again, there's the maternal attentiveness, but the attentiveness to somebody who's a separate person. Um, I don't see that as, I see it as too involved in, for the analyst, too involved in what I call the intersubjective, in the, in the relationship with this separate individual, to see it as right. pragmatic. Right, right. Um, but, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I mean, I make claim to many different <laughs> professions, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm, not uh-huh. in, I'm not in my own um, ground when I talk about what is pragmatism. I mean, I use it. I talk about Warren Poland as a pragmatist, but, but in terms of really philosophical pragmatism, you know. Um, I, meant, I meant pragmatic in the sense of even, even thinking about psychic health. And even thinking about, you know, that there's something like a goal here or, or like, like a focus that, that we work towards. Mm-hmm. Well, um, 
Yeah. Uh, you could call it subject health, or you could call it in my terms or the Lowaldian terms more a vision of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and then it doesn't have, I guess it does in some sense have criteria, if you could have mm-hmm. criteria of subjectivity, but I wouldn't call it psychic health necessarily, although I'm not opposed to, you know, I think there's very good reason that, that doctors were originally analysts and that mm-hmm. um, that you are trying to give somebody a kind of a psychic grounding and stability. But I think that um, what we're talking about, um, or Lowald, is the vision of subjectivity to, you know, the range between more, I don't like the word primitive because it also has all those uh-huh, really uh-huh. kind of ethnocentric and, and Eurocentric connotations, but but more fused oneness, more differentiation, going back and forth between those, um, ranging in quality of experience, um, fluid, you know, capacity to take on, you know, to absorb a range of experiences, um, uh, transference modes, being able to, um, you know, as he says, you wouldn't want somebody without transference, um, you know, mm-hmm. making, <laughs> turning the ghosts into ancestors so that they become part of the self, part of the psyche and can be used, um, being able to live in both fantasy and reality, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, Pragmatism seems like the wrong word there, but it may be because I don't know that much about pragmatism. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the sense of self as an individual um, and the complexity of that. Um, yeah, I think that those are, you know, unconsciously the range of emotions. That all seems to me um, not American pragmatism. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and as I said, I don't know that much about pragmatism, but I think that I think that a lot of the pragmatists were actually, you know, not just sort of oh well, whatever works, that's it. But I think the real pragmatists right. were, were a much more complicated um, philosophical. Um, do we? People like ways of thinking. Right, right. I'm off, right. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm out of my ex- realm of expertise yeah. there. Nancy, I was wondering before before we come to a close, uh, this this book uh, collects your thinking about the American independent tradition from the last two decades almost, right? Like you started this in 99, I think. So how has the response been so far in the U.S. Ah. and internationally? Okay, well, let me tell you one thing. For one thing, you know, it's interesting because that is the subtitle of the book. It's not the title. Mm-hmm. The title uh-huh. is the Psychoanalytic uh-huh. Ear and the Sociological Eye. And uh-huh. um, partly what I am really trying to bring in this two fields in connection to one uh-huh. another. 
and to advocate for, as I call it, a field of individuology in the university. The social right. sciences are thin without a real field that studies individuality, but also that psychoanalysts um, can be, in a way, kind of very naive and even smug about what they know about psyche, about society and culture. They don't mm -hmm. really feel mm -hmm. that they need to know about what scholars have thought about, that they can just be sort of good enough citizens. Um, and so the American independent tradition is certainly very front and central in the book, but, the, but also the argument for psychoanalysts knowing about the social sciences and moving into the university, not just in literature and humanities departments where it's all about texts, but where you really try and teach undergraduates how to, how to think about the individual. So uh, I realize we're winding down, but, but I do want to make that, yes. that clear, that, 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 that's, that that's the context in which um, the American independent tradition is, is cast. And remind me the question that you wanted me to answer about the American independent tradition, because I'm also happy to do that. But. I think it's very important that you mention that point. We always have the problem of only running 15 minutes, more or less. But I think it's a very important point you make in the book about um, psychoanalysis as a discipline having to open itself up to, to, to a yeah, wider scope, I guess, not, not <laughs> for treatment, but, you know, for taking in all these other disciplines that actually study a broader context. Particularly the social sciences. You see, I think right. psychoanalysts are very happy to think of themselves as, right. as kind of cultured cosmopolitans and to write about right. opera and literature and um, to, you know, psychoanalysis has moved into the, into the humanities, especially through Lacan mm -hmm. in a big way. Mm -hmm. But psychoanalysts, mm -hmm. unlike Freud, whom I also talk about in the book, really think that it's just, you know, any citizen can know enough to have something to say about politics, race, class, culture, world history, world society. And there are a lot of people in the world who actually study that. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, it's, I, you know, it's interesting. Bob Wallerstein was one of the great psychoanalysts of the world, and his brother, Emmanuel Wallerstein, was the person who invented what's called world systems theory, the sociologist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they kind of divided the territory. Um, and that doesn't happen enough, doesn't right? It doesn't happen like enough. And yeah. uh, anyway, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of trailing off and I know we're at the end, but, but I would like to, <laughs> I don't want to lose the two parts, the, the, yeah the very deeply theoretical commitment, to, especially to Lowell and what comes after to the American independent tradition, um, which, you know, Warren Poland and James McLaughlin and are the two I write about, but there are others. And I find now when I go to meetings that people say, well, I'm an American independent, you know, mm -hmm. they pick it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's great. It must you know, be very rewarding. I, it really is. Rosemary Balsam would say she is. A lot of people would say they are. 
but um that's amazing but that you but you you wanted me to speak specifically about something which I'm now gone no that's that's what I was interested in like how how the response has been oh. so far like yeah, I, you know, if people... I, I think it's I think it's hard to say you're talking to somebody who as you know and as I've told you I mean there is never going to be response to my, anything I write that has been as great as what was my first book. Right. So I, it's in the context of, by accident, my dissertation was it had a kind of impact that even now, as I've I've told you, you know, somebody, there's a fest trip coming out in honor of it of the fiftieth fortieth mm-hmm. anniversary of the reproduction of mothering. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I do think that. British independents, whom I know and respect, have really liked what I've had to say about their, about British independence and about the observations I make about orthodoxy. And mm-hmm. I do feel that certainly many people in Western New England, which was Lowald's Institute, and I've spoken there a lot, and Erickson's Institute originally, see themselves as American independents. I think Warren Poland would see himself, would say he was an American independent. Um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be a Lowell center that's going to open in a couple of years. It was supposed to open this fall, oh. but it's going to have to be put off because we can't go speak. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. In, at, you know, in New York. So, uh, I think I've been one of the people who's helped to really not the only one, but well, you know, but who's helped really to, to get people to, Notice this person who did not want to be a Lowaldian school and did right. not want to found right. a tradition. But I think I've heard through sort of secondhand was actually very grateful <laughs> to my, to my having mm-hmm. discovered him and, and written about him way back in a book called Feminism and Psychoanalytic Theory. I wrote about Lowald mm-hmm. as being the person best able to. Uh, but there's something that really draws people to him. You know, I have a footnote you probably missed that that the first time I gave a paper on Lowell, it was ironically at the New School. Joel Whitebook, who's a philosopher, had organized a conference on Lowell. <laughs> I mean, I'd written about Lowell. And Stephen Mitchell, who died a few years later, and I gave the two opening papers. And we used almost the same quotes in our papers. And at the very end, and I said, therefore, Lowell has founded a new tradition, intersubjective ego psychology. He's an ego psychologist. And Stephen, <laughs> and Stephen Mitchell said, and therefore, Lowell is one of the original founders of relational psychoanalysis. That's amazing. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Different perspectives. But Lowell, you see, because he was so careful and so. Yeah. Respectful of the people he wrote about and respectful of his ways of thinking and his clarity and integrity of what he had to say. Um, you know, it's not easy that you say, oh, he's this and he's that. It really requires listening very closely to Lowald, which is, of course, what I, you know, what we also try and do with our patients. Um, 
as an individual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who thinks in a complicated way, who might change mm-hmm. from day to day or paper to paper, depending on whether you're talking about um, mm-hmm. uh, the writing or the clinical work. Mm-hmm. Wow, uh, Nancy, I'm really sorry that we have to come to an end, but we're almost almost running an hour now. Mm-hmm. Oh Would goodness. you mind telling us what what are you working on at the moment, or what what do you have lined up for us? Huh, well, um, <laughs> surviving right now. The main, the <laughs> yeah, main well. thing I've I've worked on that that really just finished and and I'm not sure where I'm going to go now except I mean that the main thing is that I wrote an overview uh, a retrospective um, called you know the reproduction of mothering 30 years later mm-hmm. and so that's mainly the, the the next thing I did after the book was to write um, I think it's called women mother daughters is the title. And I have a quote from my own book, right. a quote from Karen Horney is my head quotes. Um, but that's, that's what I've been, um, most working on. That's, that's big. And then, you know, I'm going to give one of the opening talks at the Lowell center if and when it happens. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it won't be, you know, um, I don't expect or want to do another big book. I do want to writing the the reproduction of mothering 40 years on looking back on mothers and daughters has been very important and doing the Lowell Center is very important. Um, And uh, you know, this book just came out and the other book is still in the process. And I think some people have, you know, fallow periods. They don't, Immediately, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, start to uh, write something instantly new. Um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and and I don't think I'll write about Eric Erickson again, although I love Erickson. Um, mm-hmm. But um, occasionally I do things. But but really, the the Buskins volume has been very big the woman mother daughters it took me a long time to do that right. over something that i wrote 40 years ago um, yeah 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 um so, great so maybe we'll have you we'll have you back on for the fest well, shift i then. would love that i would love to talk about it. it's a very different place and um yeah and so so at this point great. you know i i get to um, I, I've always worked like this, but I don't, I'm not somebody who immediately, oh, turn in the final version and okay, here's what's next. But of course, I just right. finished the thing for the best shrift about a week ago. So it's not as if I've, you know, been right. that, um, yeah. So it's not as if I've been that, uh, you know, doing nothing, but, um, right. Okay. Great. Um, so. Nancy, thank you very much for coming on. Well, I've really and enjoyed it. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you. Very much. Thank you. And, oh, you know, you can also look at Jeffrey Berman is doing a volume on 
on analysts. He interviewed me that you might find that interesting at some point. Okay, we'll, we'll check into that and maybe we'll have you back on for the I festive. I love that. Then. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Thank you for your patience. Thanks very and much. And I really like talking to you. Thanks. Thank you, Nancy. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye.